You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio 950 AM and 930 AM. During the next hour, the Archdiocese of Chicago brings you conversation about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Welcome to Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Good morning. I'm Jim Dish with the Archdiocese of Chicago's Radio TV office, joining you on Relevant Radio, 950 and 930 a.m. Every Saturday morning, we bring you highlights of our Catholic Chicago radio programs that air throughout the week. Holy Name Cathedral Rector, Father Greg Sackowitz, and his planning and development assistant, Mark Teresi, began our broadcast week by interviewing two terrific authors. First up, the publisher of Acta Publications, Greg Pierce. What is Acta Publications? Well, Acta Publications has been around a long time. Uh, started out in the mid-70s with some Chicago priests, actually Jerry Weber, Jake Kilgallen, and a few others. Oh, those are giants. And uh, they, uh, they published uh, you know, a lot of catechetical books, like uh, Life in Christ, one of the big catechisms some of your readers might have used. And uh, I, people always ask me, what does uh, ACTA stand for? And I said, well, it used to stand for All Catholics Think Alike, but they had to change it. <laughs> so... <laughs> So it's pretty uh, funny. Yeah. What does it stand for? Well, uh, first it stood for Adult Catechetical Teaching Aids, ACTA. Oh. And uh, that was kind of narrow. So when I got there at 86, I changed it to Assisting Christians to Act. Assisting Christians, Christians to, to Act. act. Okay. So it, it kind of covered everything that we, we did. But then I started publishing baseball books. And so I couldn't send out baseball books that said Assisting Christians to Act. because <laughs> made. So it changed it to A Company to Admire. And now I changed it one last time. I'm going to call it, uh, I think, something like uh, uh, A Commitment to All, ACTA, Publications. A Commitment to All. Yeah. That's over on, what is it, 4848 North Clark? Correct. It's been there all that time. All that time. uh, So maybe just real quickly now is if someone wanted to learn more about ACTA, give us the web. ACTA Publications, all one word, ACTA Publications, plural, at ACTA. AOL, I mean, at AOL, dot com. I'm sorry, actapublications.com. Okay, Doc, we'll talk more about that a little later on. Yeah. So maybe tell us about this new, soon-to-be book published, Reveille for a New Generation, Organizers and Leaders Reflect on Power. Yeah. You know, this is a book I've wanted to do for a long time. And I think that it's something that uh, is needed at this time more than maybe most times because there's so much division that's going on in our country. And it's a lot of it's political, but a lot of it's just between neighbors, friends, people inside families. And uh, organizing, community organizing, has a kind of an opposite approach. We're trying to pull people together. And it's a different approach, I guess, from uh, politics, because politics tends to divide people in a sense of I'm either for this person or that person, or for this party or that party. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it, it's also different from what I call good Samaritanism. That is, we see people in trouble, we try to help them out. But the problem is we, we can't constantly run into people in trouble. It gets more and more and worse and worse, and pretty soon we're, we're overwhelmed. And so a third kind of way of doing this has been community organizing, which I've been involved in for 50 years and which uh, has been around for at least 80 years with the Industrial Areas Foundation, which is an organization that has been formed to do this around the country and even in some other places in the world. Now, we we have a mutual friend, Father Dom Grassi. Yeah, Dom, I love Dom. Yeah, and you work 
so well with him. Did you publish his? Absolutely. His, his uh, winter. Uh, yeah, Death, Death in, in Chicago, Chicago winter. And one of the scenes is in this place that we're in right now. Here in at Quigley. Former Quigley. At Quigley, yeah. <laughs> now, has he come out with spring? Not yet. Uh, <laughs> you know, authors all have, uh, he wants to do four books, but he only right. did one. So he's got <laughs> to get that second one. Dom, if you're listening, get writing. Right. <laughs> we talked about, you know, winter's out, and he talked about spring, summer, and fall. Right. And it's but, got but a he great. He's a great writer. And, and he has a great, uh, you know, detective, former seminarian. Detective named Cosmo Grande. <laughs> now I brought his name up not really for that reason, but he got a little commercial. Yeah, but, but um, he introduced me to Arise, the group Arise. Uh-huh. Now that's community organizing, supportive. Right. Uh, how 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 would this book connect with a group like that? Well, first of all, there's a long tradition. There's a long tradition in the United States going all the way back to people organizing. Uh, if you know the book by uh, de Tocqueville, Democracy mm-hmm. in America, mm-hmm. was by a French guy who came over here and looked at, at the United States even before the revolution, I think, and or maybe right afterwards and said, you know, when, the, when Americans have a problem, they organize. Mm-hmm. They get together. They don't expect the government to do it for them. In terms of, of Catholicism, it's, uh, it's the, the tradition of, uh, uh, you know, doing things at the lowest possible level. You know, doing it at the local level whenever possible. But what's the word for that? Uh, we have it. You know, tr- that that the Catholics believe that what we should do is not expect. Yeah, what, some... what is that word? Yeah. Um, how I'll... about how about sports for four hundred? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just to flip gears for a second, Greg. Yeah. I've known you for thirty-five years. Yeah. You are so into community organizing with a passion, with a heart. All the years I've known you, and you've never let up in terms of. It's a passion with you. How did you get into community organizing? This isn't going back to high school. No, no. No, it, it actually, uh, I was in uh, the seminary for both high school and college. Quigley? Were you Quigley? I was not. Oh. I was in Rochester, New York. Oh. Okay. And then I went to the Maryknoll Seminary out in Glen Ellen and graduated in 1969 and didn't have the slightest idea because I decided after eight years in the seminary, I decided that wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. So what does a layperson do? Who has a sense. And you were about 22. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I ran into uh, the people at the Industrial Areas Foundation, and they were just, just getting started with training organizers. And so they, they trained me, and I did it for the rest of my life, both as an, a paid organizer sometimes and then sometimes as a leader. I had two questions. Maybe I'll combine them together. The first is, you know, you have a wonderful listing of publications, one of them that no, I noticed uh, which I think would be very timely for a lot of folks, is The Alzheimer's Spouse by Mary Doyle. So I'm thinking of that title, and I'm thinking of ACTA, and I'm thinking, well, who could access these titles? That's a title that anybody could relate to. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if people sometimes think ACTA is religious books. Well, most of our books are spiritual. Mm-hmm. Some of them are Catholic. Some of them are religious uh, but some of them are just trying to get at people's daily lives. Mm-hmm. I have a rule at ACT I've had since 1986 when I got there that there are no footnotes in ACT books Wonderful. because because they're not aimed at academics. They're aimed at people that are going through daily life, trying to raise their families, do their jobs, get involved in their communities. That's what we specialize in. So the book you just referenced mm-hmm. is uh, a book 
by Mary Doyle, who's uh, I'm going to send her in here for one of your talks, on, uh, one of your great. radio programs. But she's done two books. She did Navigating Alzheimer's for caretakers, caregivers of mm -hmm. people with Alzheimer's. But then she did The Alzheimer's Spouse recently because uh, she was married actually to somebody that many of your listeners would know, Marshall Brodeen. Oh, sure, oh, the sure. magician. Yeah, right? he was the Wizzo the Wizard bozo. On, on the Bozo thing, but he also— She was married to Marshall? Yeah, she was married to Marshall for wow. years, but Marshall ha suffered he, from Alzheimer's for almost 15 years. He died last summer. Wow. wow. And, uh, and he was former on Bozo Show. Which clown? She was no, no, Wizzo. he was Wizzo the Wizard. Wizzo the Wizard. Wizzo. Didn't you watch Bozo? <laughs> when I was younger. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Wizzo um, the Wizard, yeah, he was good. He was good, and uh, he, he would come to the act of Christmas parties and perform— Little, oh, uh, little wow. uh, magic tricks for everybody. He was always very popular. Um, but Mary, uh, again, she's trying to be helpful to other people that are going through this. She, she did it for 15 years, took care of her husband, and watched him progressively decline. And yet she remained faithful the whole time, and she also saw the good things that mm -hmm. the, the, this gave her. But she also gave very practical advice to people. Another book we just published that I wanted to mention because uh, we just won an award over the weekend uh, from a book by uh, an 88-year-old Franciscan nun up in Milwaukee, Sister Irene Zimmerman. Mm. And she's a poet. And uh, she, she sent me this book about a year ago uh, and said, uh, you know, I've published four books of poetry. I'd like to publish this, this book. And so we did. We put it together. We, uh, we, put it, uh, we have some uh, great fo photographs by a uh, Trappist monk, Father James Behrens, who also died last, this, last year. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but it won an award called the Illumination Award. It's called when, Where God is at Home, Where God is at Home. And it's poetry and photographs that make a perfect gift for people, uh, people who like poetry, people that even that don't like poetry. We also have Bible quotes. Inside, uh, tied to each one of her, uh, one of her. You know, what I find, Greg, is that what I love about ACTA publications, and again, for our listeners, it's capital A C T A, all four capital letters publications over on Clark. And uh, but what your books do is, for the most part, connect the mystery of God with the mystery of our lives. That's right. They're very practical. A lot of stories because it's so incarnational. But you're really helping people day to day living, again, connecting the mystery of God with our life. Following that conversation with Greg Pierce, Father Greg and Mark had the pleasure of speaking with Helen Reichert Lambin, author of An A to Z Guide to Letting Go. At my age, a little more than 39, uh, <laughs> I've done, had a good a bit of experience in letting go. Now, it sounds like, you know, books have been written about this, of course, so why another? Well, if it was easy, you'd already have let go of whatever it is, and each person's style is different. You know, what works for one person doesn't work for the next person. Yeah, yeah. I just, you know, I think that um, I have found in my life and listening to so many people, blessed as a priest, people have so much trouble letting go. And I, in fact, I tell people, and they, what can they, what can't they let go of? It's usually anger, bitterness. Here's a great question I heard on retreat 20 years ago: As we grow older, is life making you better or bitter? Oh, great question. That's a great question to to reflect on. Is life making you better or bitter? And things that we just can't let go of, especially anger, hatred, and unforgiving heart, and then it owns us. So, how did you come to writing the book, though? 
I'm not sure. I think for, for me, writing is a way of dealing with transformation, change, transition. Uh, when my husband died, I wrote a book, Death of a Husband. Uh, when did he pass away? January 20th, 1996. So 20 And how years long ago. were you married? Uh, 30 some years, and before that, I dated him five years, four months, and 23 days. But who's mm. counting? Wow. Wow. So talk about. The wow. day that he died, a big part of you died. Oh, yes, indeed, because he was my best friend. And he died my... young. Uh, he was older than I uh, was, but still but seems very young to me now. Because oh, yeah. the years pass so quickly, don't oh, they? So, And so this is one of the things I do. I don't know. I guess I, when I was very young, I wanted to do two, three things, write, uh, travel, and marry a rancher and live in Montana and have a horse. So <laughs> <laughs> well, I've done two out of three. I never got the horse. <laughs> never, got, never got the horse. <laughs> I'd write you a joke, which I'm not going to tell. No, please don't. <laughs> so, again, how did the book come about, Helen? I, 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 I was thinking of, uh, I'm not sure to tell the truth. It just came. It just came. I'm thinking about something, and all of a sudden, this the idea of letting go came. Maybe because I was in a position of getting near to the point where I'd moved the, from the house I'd lived in for so many years, and you're getting to the point where you're thinking of maybe driving less. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about moving into a condo, and different friends were passing. And also part of it, figuring my character need revision. You know, definitely need revision and letting go of some of the things. You've talked about anger, that's one. Because we all have it. Mm -hmm. Anger, anxiety, guilt, hostility, you name it. Now, I love, I, I, oh, excuse me, I love the chapter titles. And one of them that resonated with me was letting go of the keys to the car. And I want to hear your take on that because when my mother-in-law was told that she said, well, dig my grave and I'm going to jump right in. So I don't think that probably was a healthy way of, of letting go. Well, maybe a little bit about that chapter, but the titles of those chapters are fascinating. Well, it was interesting trying to work to make sure it fit because I had ideas for this. And moving, for me, putting it alphabetically is a good way of organizing mm -hmm. the whole thing. Also, it's like all of a sudden there's so many things to let go of, but once you start alphabetizing it, you're narrowing it down. Now, what are the most important things? Now, did you have to let go of the keys to the car? Yes, I did. Uh, I did it voluntarily. Did Greg My, Pierce drive you here today? What? Did Greg Pierce drive yes, you here? Yes, he did. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, well, I take public transit okay. a lot. Uh, one of the things I say in letting go is at bullet points at the top. Every human being has to make choices. Some choices are easier to make than others. Giving up our car keys may be the hardest thing some of us have to give up. We need to give them up. And I also talk about helping other people, asking them. This can be even harder, asking people to give up the car keys. Mm -hmm. uh, Ironically, I lived with a priest that uh, Greg Pierce knew well, Father Tom Maher, God rest his soul. When we had to ask to take the car keys from him, it was nothing short but of a war. Yeah. And because uh, he he would every day do five or six hours of communion calls in the neighborhood, and go to the hospitals, so he found it so hard to give up the keys. Is just one example, but what a good holy priest! And uh, now there's a guy who died at 92, 
passionate? Mm-hmm. Well, part of it is I, your identity. Part of it, yes. I had a little red hatchback that I absolutely loved. And part of it is your a sense of identity. Think about it, your driver's license. You know, you can get a different one, but think of when you first And got your independence. To, your independence. Now, I take public transit. I always did because who drives downtown? You know, usually don't drive here, and I have a collection of fashionable canes that I use for getting on and off buses. <laughs> you know, you have to have fashionable canes to get on and off buses. Like that. But I, th- yeah, I realized, you know, this was hard to give it up. Yeah. I missed it. I thought of our trips together to Iowa and the different memories my car and I had. But I still am somebody. Helen, one of your so you've alphabetized your letting goes, but one of the first ones is probably one of the most important, letting go of anger. Do you want to speak to that a bit? Uh, I'm going to read the, a little bit of the beginning of it because there's a lot to say about mm-hmm. anger. Mm-hmm. So don't get angry if I go on too long. <laughs> the word anger casts a wide net. It could be caused by anything from injustice to minor annoyance to perceived insults, slights, interruptions, bad moods, bad manners, and so on. Anger is tricky. Other people's anger is unjustified and self-righteous. But our anger is justified <laughs> because we are always right. <laughs> and then I talk about the fact that anger can bring about good things. Greg's talked about organizing and anger used constructively can change things for the better. Anger that's destructive is when it lingers and it's like a fever. And one of the uh, images I liked, Eckhart Tolle in his I can't remember which book. Anyway, he talks about ducks. When ducks have a squabble in the water, they squabble and then they shake off the water off their wings and swim away. And he does the analogy of if ducks thought like humans, well, it was in my space, you know, this. Because some, if it's the anger that smolders. Do you yeah. remember a time when you were angry and you were able to let it go? Oh, <laughs> just, one, just one, just one. Just <laughs> one. Oh, yes. Now I'm trying to think of a specific time. Uh, yes. Uh, someone had said, uh, I was at a gathering, and someone had asked someone, uh, was I a good writer? This is a friend I give him books. I don't know. I've never read any of them. Yes. And I let go of the anger. It only took months <laughs> <laughs> you know let me let me just say one thing about this book to your to your listeners <laughs> helen is also very funny she's very insightful yes. <laughs> but her writing is funny the book is funny one of the things that really amused me is she did this a to z guy but it's not some of the the letters didn't actually fit we just had to <laughs> make them fit but then when i counted them at the end there were 34 there's only 26 <laughs> letters in the, the album, album. But, but we got 34 so uh you know, another and the other thing is, we she put some uh, questions for reflection and discussion at the end, so it can be used in a group. Wonderful, and it can be used individually, and it can be used in a family. So it's a it's a very helpful book. And again, no footnotes; it's just there. It's a gift book. It looks like a gift book. Now, and I always find that beside anger, bitterness, an unforgiving heart, jealousy, those things can own us. And they, I always say, if something owns you. Let it go. That's the thing about letting go. They can. In fact, <laughs> you, if you, I, I, some of this, I would have used some of your quotes if I hadn't written the book yet. One of the things I talk about is envy. Uh, because 
I know a seven, some of the seven deadlies, but it's one of the less enjoyable. I mean, people will say, I have my pride. Mm-hmm. Or gluttony can at least be enjoyable. We won't even get into <laughs> lust and things like that. But no one says, I have my envy. No, you know, right. Uh-huh, you're you trying. don't want to own it. No, yeah. you don't want to own it. You don't want to admit to it. And But it's the idea, you, you know, this person's better. Or I can't do that. And it's still, you are somebody. You are yourself. Thanks to Helen for stopping by. You can get a copy of her book and many other fine publications by going to actapublications.com. That's acta, A-C-T-A, publications.com. Stick around because after a short break, we'll hear from our crew at Catholic Charities. We invite you to watch Catholic Chicago this weekend, featuring a conversation with Cardinal Blaise Supich and video highlights from across the archdiocese. Here's host Todd Williamson. We'll introduce you to Catholic school students who are helping people in need in their communities. We'll tell you about a history-making agreement that provides several years of security for 30 Catholic schools and their students. And we'll talk with Cardinal Blaise Supich about the importance of everyone being counted in this year's census. Watch Catholic Chicago Friday at 7 p.m. on Chicago Loop Cable, Channel 25, and Sunday afternoon at 3 on the Comcast Network, Channel 100. Welcome back to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio 950 and 930 a.m. I'm Jim Dish of the Archdiocese of Chicago's Radio TV office with highlights of local Catholic radio programs that can be heard Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 in the morning at 7.50 a.m. Catholic Charities has a wide range of programs to help seniors stay active. Voice of Charity co-hosts Marie Jokum and Michael Bear welcomed Jalissa Blue and Nancy Morrison into the studio. They discussed adult daycare centers that are increasingly popular with seniors and their families. The winter months can be tough, I know, because I have a February birthday and no one ever came to my party, but they can also be <laughs> especially... come to yours. <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate that. But they can be tough for seniors, too, who have a hard time getting out of their homes on a regular basis. Luckily, Catholic Charities has just the answer with many of our programs for seniors um, helping them stay active. So today we're going to shine a spotlight on three adult daycare centers that Catholic Charities operates. And at these daytime centers, older adults get breakfast, lunch, snacks while they participate in activities and socialize with other people. Uh, staying active can make a huge positive difference in your health and your outlook on life until spring arrives. We all know that. Mm-hmm. And these places are very, very fun. I visited a couple, and just to see the joy, I'm, I'm excited for our guests to share a little bit more about what that joy feels like and looks like. So the three centers we're talking about today are the Accolade Center in Oak Park, and the St. Alby and the Ida S. Niles Centers in Chicago. So with us in the studio to tell us about these centers is Jalisa Blue, who is the activity director for our Ada S. Niles Center. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Our other guest today is Nancy Morrison, who's a dedicated volunteer at our Accolade Center in Oak Park. Nancy's calling into the show, and we're so glad you're here today, Nancy. Thank you very much. I um, appreciate being asked to share my opinion about the senior daycare centers operated by Catholic Charities. 
Well, we certainly appreciate everything that you do. You know, I think we're going to start with um, Jalisa. Can you share with us a little bit about about yourself? So you you work at Catholic Charities. When did you start? What brought you to working with seniors and specifically in our um, at eight at Ada's Niles. Well, I have been working with Catholic Charities for five years. It's a pretty funny story that brought me to working with seniors. I used to work with children. I worked in a whole different end of the spectrum. I worked with potty training, toddlers. <laughs> the other side. <laughs> the, uh, the whole different side. And my do- I have a daughter who is now eight, but at the time she was two. And by the time we would get home, she was getting the short end of the stick. So mommy had to figure out another way. And Catholic Charities was there. And working with my seniors, I started at St. Albie's, which was the best place to start because if I can just be very transparent, Miss Tennant was the best person to learn from and how to take care of them and how to plan activities for them and make sure that they enjoy coming and enjoy every day. So what do you like best about working with seniors on a daily basis? Every day is different. Yeah. <laughs> Every day is different. And mainly, they love to dance. They love to <laughs> dance. They are very honest. They will tell you everything that is going on. And they, they want to feel loved. And yeah. it's so easy to love on them. It's so easy to love on them and make them know that they are just as important today as they were 50 years ago. Sure. Maybe do a little compare con- and contrast between the centers that we're talking about, Accolade, St. Albies, and Aiden S. Niles centers. What are the ways that they're similar, and what are some ways that they're different? Well, all three sites operate the same. So all sites celebrate all of our seniors as they come through the door, and it's, it's a love atmosphere. I really don't see the difference because I have been at all three sites, I was at Accolade a couple of weeks ago, and the staff there love on their people. They love on their people. You can see the different personalities that come in with everyone. Mm -hmm. At St. Albie, it is a party every day, just as well as (laughs) Ada Niles. If if my seniors come in, they're my heart. And if I see they're having a bad day, what song do you want to listen to? What's going to bring you out of this funk? Well, I want to listen to and I want to dance. And can we do tight dash Like we have a, a whole list of things that we do to That's make amazing. them enjoy coming. And so why do people choose? Why do family members, caregivers, seniors themselves, why do people choose these sites? Um, I know that that folks come in and they see they see it and, and they want to be involved, but why do you think folks are choosing them? What What's bringing families and caregivers and seniors to these sites? Socialization. Mm-hmm. Something to get them to keep coming. Something to keep them to keep waking up every day. That drive. The caregivers, they need an outlet. Mm-hmm. It's hard to take care of your loved one. It's like the children are taking care of the parents at this moment and the younger siblings are taking care of the older siblings and it's roles reversed and it can be hard you need someone to have your back in it and I have so many seniors who come in who just who express how enjoyable it is every day I have one participant who suffered from three strokes and she is wheelchair bound, and she does not miss a day. Wow! And she has said more than one, "I come because you guys make me laugh." And she, <laughs> we make her laugh, but she makes my day. She is the biggest cheerleader. 
for that. everyone. And she encourages everyone and goes above and beyond. And she has a lot of reason to just give up. And, and she has not. She's so awesome. That's amazing. And in the last minute before we head to our first break, can you share with us, so you said some folks use wheelchairs. What are some of the other limitations? Socialization is definitely a reason, but why do other folks come to us? They come to have fun. <laughs> they come to have fun. They come to get out. They come to be active because we exercise daily. We go out, we go on trips. Like today, my seniors are going to see bad boys. Fun. They're on the they're, <laughs> fun. They, when I told them I couldn't go because I was coming here, they said, "Oh, okay, we'll tell you about it." And That's there great. was no remorse. They left me. That's great. Yes, but it's all it's all about them having fun and enjoying their life. For more information about how you can support the great ministries of Catholic Charities, go to catholiccharities.net. That's catholiccharities.net. Next up, Ryan Lentz and Corinne Woodruff from the Office of Human Dignity and Solidarity. Welcome Michael Rabbit into the studio to speak about his efforts to promote racial justice in his parish and throughout the Archdiocese. You um, uh, have been involved with anti-racism work for, for almost 20 years now. So maybe start, could you talk a little bit about just how, how you got on that journey? Like what uh, kind of led you to, to be, uh, you know, so involved in, in promoting racial justice? Sure. So uh, I grew up in St. Louis. I grew up in a integrated neighborhood in St. Louis uh, in the central West End area. Um, and, you know, St. Louis, like Chicago, has a history of segregation and a topic that, uh, you know, I'm very passionate about addressing. And, um, you know, I had an opportunity to go to a Catholic elementary school, it was about 50% white, 50% black. And so, you know, I got to see the uh, how a diverse world should, should operate from that standpoint. Yet at the same time, I saw the discrimination and racism that uh, my black classmates faced uh, growing up there. And so I think that combined with the fact that I grew up in a family where um, respecting human dignity dignity and uh, social justice was really an important value in, in my family, um, I think that, that those values were instilled in me in, at a young age growing up in St. Louis. Um, then in Chicago, uh, about on the time that I moved up to the far northwest side and joined St. Mary of the Woods, had the experience of uh, one of the priests there, uh, the late Father Tom Maher, approached me after mass one time and said, you know, the, uh, we're, we're, we're organizing uh, a, a retreat, an overnight re anti-racism workshop for uh, parishioners here, uh, along with several other participating parishes. And uh, would you like to go? And I said, absolutely. You know, this, I'd been, you know, looking to get more involved in, in, in racial, work for racial justice. And so um, he said, then he made the comment, well, I'm so happy because you're the first person that's voluntarily or willingly agreed to go. I had to twist a lot of arms to get other, pe other people to go. So mm. thank you very much. And so um, that was a tremendous experience for me. Um, and one of the things that you do at this workshop, there's a resolution, you know, something that you're going to do to try to sustain what you talked about at the workshop. And the resolution that myself and a couple other folks uh, agreed to that was that we would start a uh, ministry at St. Mary of the Woods focused on racial and social justice. A mm. um, little bit of pushback at first. Far Northwest side of Chicago has a history of racism and segregation. And uh, so, you know, we knew that, uh, you know, this would be challenging work, but um, we've, we have made it work. And then from there, 
Um, I had opportunities to be involved in other workshops. Uh, you're probably familiar with Sea Roar uh, Crossroads yep. has an amazing two and a half day workshop that really gets into the analysis of the history of racism and uh, systemic white supremacy. And uh, that was a very transformational educational experience for me. Uh, and then that positioned me to be, get more involved at the Archdiocese where I was invited to join the, uh, the anti-racism team that you mentioned. And then also um, be a become a workshop facilitator for the one day workshops that the Archdiocese held, that the Office of Racial Justice held for um, uh, parish staff and uh, Catholic school teachers. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that obviously um, growing up, being part of a family that really underscored the importance of human dignity and, and linking that aspect of, of faith to this work. Um, how has that, I guess, that understanding or that conviction kind of grown over time as you've as you've done things with the parish, as you've done things with the archdiocese? Like how, you know, I just think about how it's so important for us to put a Catholic identity on the work of anti-racism and dismantling white supremacy because, um, you know, we have such a rich Catholic social tradition that, that we can call for for that. that. That's right. I mean, it, it, as you know, it's often called the, the best kept secret in the church, the, mm. the social justice mission. And so, um, you know, racism is something that uh, particularly white people, we do not talk about. We're not willing to confront our history. And that's a big part of what we talk about in this program on the lynching memorial that we'll talk about in a bit. Um, we don't hear enough uh, sermons or homilies uh, on racism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, there's just way too much silence and denial. And I think that I see that as a big part of, of, of my faith is that we, we need to, um, to embrace this history. We need to talk about it. We need to confront it. We need to dismantle uh, racism and systemic white supremacy. Yeah, yeah. And I think oftentimes uh, in conversations that I have with other white folks, it's it's often that racism is kind of seen as something in the past. And and obviously, as we as we look at how, and especially part of it is to understand what is the definition of racism that we're working with, right? Because if all we do is define racism as bigotry toward another individual, well, you know, fortunately, we're in our society that type of outward kind of hate. Um, behavior is is generally frowned upon, although we see you know we see expressions of it in some places. Um, but fortunately, it's not as as not as out as it was. But but uh, but certainly, when we talk about systems and institutions, when we talk about bias and we talk about uh, misuse of power in systems yep. and institutions, that still is very much alive and well in our society today. And it, it, it requires a, a, commi- a commitment and a, a real sustained effort, right, to be able to to recognize how that's alive in our lives and, and yeah. where we and, and we have to have a lens to, to look for it and to see it. And we also have to have the ability to see where other people are on that journey, right? Mm-hmm. So for a lot of people, it's, as you said, it's just defined as individual racism and they have a hard time seeing beyond that. They have a hard time seeing the institutional, systemic and structural aspects of racism. But I think if we can recognize where people are, are, are on that journey, um, you know, we can we can tailor our message and help bring them along and 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 educate folks to to get them to to where where we all want to be. Yeah, I'm so grateful that you mentioned Chicago Roar. I've I've had the privilege of working with that organization for a couple of years now, and you mentioned they have a, a terrific two and a half day workshop that really goes into a deep analysis and history of racism. Um, they also have a number of really good one day workshops that are are kind of good. Um, intros to, to either systemic racism or crit- critical cultural competency. They also have a really good one on um, on anti-bias, anti-racism education that's great for, for, for school uh, personnel. 
Um, Karen, I know actually you had a chance to uh, be part of that two-and-a-half-day workshop uh, through Amate House Formation. Can you share a bit about what that was like for you? Yes. So as part of our Amate House Formation, since leadership development is something that the organization um, holds so highly, in mid-September, my 18 fellow program members and I, as well as the executive director of Amate House, went through the two-and-a-half-day anti-racism training with a couple other service organizations um, in the Chicago area. And like you said, it was a very intense, informational, and really important two and a half days. I think looking back on those two days, it was just kind of a lot was moving and stirring in our hearts as a community because Amate House is a predominantly white institution um, out of the almost all of the fellows this year are identify as white. So I think about how Amate House is also trying to become an anti-racist organization and the ways that it can grow and how we as people of faith are called to these conversations, not just because um, human dignity matters, because of course we recognize that sense of human dignity, but like recognizing that dignity isn't enough. We have to continue to move past this. And like you were saying, Michael, how do we have these conversations? How do we walk with people who are in different spots in their anti-racism or racial justice journey. And at the end of the month, actually, myself and another individual from the St. Teresa of Avila Parish up in Lincoln Park are launching a eight-week social justice small group. And one of the focuses is like the beginning conversations about racial justice. And I'm really looking forward to kind of begin to dialogue with other young adults about how they think about that, the intersections of faith and racial justice in um, our society today. Mm-hmm. Something I, I feel like kind of comes up, and I'm, I'm reading um, a great book by Robin D'Angelo right now called um, White Fragility, right? And one of the things that she talks about in that, right, is that, um, you know, I think sometimes people feel, especially white folks, feel uncomfortable in the in conversations about race because um, they are, are just feel ill-equipped. They don't have, like, the, the information available to them. And sometimes there can be, I think, an unhealthy habit of, of putting that work on the shoulders of people of color who oftentimes are are, are the recipients of, of unjust racial structures, right? And and it's like, you know, um, it's one of the, the dynamics of like, as opposed to really putting it on ourselves to say, okay, we need to educate ourselves. We need to do some learning or unlearning of, of, of you know, unhelpful narratives that, you know, that we've been introduced to in our education or um, ways in which we haven't been given the whole picture. Um, I guess you mentioned, you know, so you've had you had a chance to go down to Montgomery and experience um, the uh, the National Lynching Memorial. The, um, the I think the official name is the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, but it's commonly known as the Lynching Memorial. So, um, a couple minutes before we go to our first break, would you be able to talk a little bit about how that came to be? Absolutely. So, um, I'm a big fan of of Brian Stevenson and Equal Justice Initiative, and uh, as as many folks know, Brian Stevenson is the uh, founder of Equal Justice Initiative, this great film out, Just Mercy, that talks about um, uh, his life and the work he's done in in, in Alabama and Georgia. And um, so I had heard about this, uh, the, the lynching memorial or National Memorial for Peace and Justice. There's also a companion museum called the Legacy Museum from enslavement to mass incarceration, which uh, I would like to talk about at some point as well. But uh, I heard about this and uh, knew that the opening ceremony was taking place in, in April 2018, and so made plans to, to travel down there for it. Um, and then uh, I also uh, shared the information. I work at Argonne National Laboratory, and I shared the information with the African American Employee Research Group there. And it turned out that a, a coworker at Argonne, uh, Leon Reed, um, when he saw that uh, information shared, he decided to go as well. And so, so Leon is actually a part of the. Um, 
program on the lynching memorial that 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 uh, I facilitate. Uh, I thought it was really important, at Leon, as a black man, to have you know I can talk about it as as a white person whose ancestors were not lynched, but it was really important to to, to have the to share the experience with um, someone whose ancestors uh, uh, were lynched, mm-hmm. um, and so. Uh, so Leon and I had a tremendous experience there, and I had a, uh, a friend who is, uh, leads the social justice ministry at uh, Queen of All Saints, Adele Bach, approached me a couple months later, said, hey, I've been, I've been seeing uh, you talk about your experience on social media and, and at other gatherings, and, and I'd like to share an idea with you. And I said, well, what idea is that? And she said, could, we, uh, could you come to Queen of All Saints and present on your experience? And so that was kind of where this started as I then thought about how I would design a program that would allow this experience to be shared with people here in Chicago who maybe can't go to Montgomery. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was kind of the origins of, of, of the program based on the, the visit in April of 2018. Great, great. And so you've had a chance to, to offer this presentation uh, a number of times, right? Um, throughout the last couple of years, right? Yeah, so uh, the, the, we're doing it again on February 27th. That'll be, I believe, the fifth time. So started Queen of All Saints in October of 2018. Uh, I was also invited to do the program at uh, St. Agatha's on the west side in collaboration with Old St. Pat's, mm-hmm. and then also on the west side at uh, St. Malachy's Precious Blood. And then we did it for the first time on the far northwest side of Chicago at the Gift Theater. And then again, the, the next one is... Uh, coming up uh, at, uh, Nor- in Norwood Park at the Norwood Park Metro Station on uh, Thursday the 27th. For more information on Michael's upcoming talk and all the anti-violence events in the Archdiocese, go to archchicago.org. Stick with us. After a break, we'll hear from our religious sisters and our local deacons as we continue Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Back after a short break. you could meet your goal of running a marathon and growing in your faith at the same time? Hi, I'm Sister Stephanie of the Mission of Our Lady of the Angels here in Chicago. Our mission has valuable guaranteed entries to the 2020 Bank of America Chicago Marathon. We'll get you training help, a race weekend support crew, and much more. And by joining Team OLA, you can help support the mission of Our Lady of the Angels as we provide a Catholic presence and very needed outreach to the poor on Chicago's west side. So run with me and the rest of Team OLA in the 2020 Chicago Marathon. We also will have a team in the Bank of America Shamrock Shuffle this coming spring. Visit missionola.com for more information or call 773-486-8431. That's missionola.com or call 773-486-8431. Thanks and God bless. You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio, 9.50 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. Every Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m., the Archdiocese of Chicago presents programming about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Thanks for letting us be part of your morning. Now again, Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Welcome back to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio, 9.50 and 9.30 a.m. 
We're bringing you highlights of local Catholic radio programs that can be heard Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 in the morning on 7.50 a.m. This month on Dare to Love, Sister Lavina Pamet visited with Sister Joan McGlinchey, Vicar for Religious for the Archdiocese of Chicago. The topic for today is the celebration of the Consecrated Life Day, which is associated with the celebration of the Feast of the Presentation of Our Lord. And Sister Joan just started to talk about why do we celebrate? And um, well, first of all, raising consciousness about consecrated life and why the change in vocabulary. And also about charism, um, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit and how it is unique for each mm-hmm. congregation that we have out, not just in the Archdiocese of Chicago, but all over the world. So Sister Joan? Okay, uh, I'd like to kind of return back when you mentioned uh, raising consciousness. I think the second purpose is very clear, that to have a day that marks, an, you know, mark to celebrates, recalls the fact the, um, the diversity and the, um, the richness, the raised consciousness of this vocation in the church and how many ways it's lived. It's lived in a contemplative style. It's lived in a monastic style. It's lived in an apostolic style and a missionary style. So there are many. Just here in Chicago, we have a cross-section of every, um, every form of consecrated life, except for uh, consecrated hermits, but we have every form of consecrated life represented, and we have such a great variety of men and women who have cho- uh, chosen this way, God has chosen and called to this way of life. So that is, and all of, all one of the common bond of, of all of all of us in consecrated life life is that we belong to Christ, and we're at the service of humanity. So that is, that's uh, I think another another reason to celebrate. And the third reason is that we have uh, consecrated life annually gives us a chance to really to look at ourselves and how we live this vocation. Look at what God has done for God's people through us and in us, and uh, to really take stock of ourselves. Um, One of the things that uh, Pope John Paul II did was talk about, remember your first love. Remember what brought you here in the first place, and let that be a source of, of life for you. So basically, the reaffirming this. And the Holy Father, just last Sunday, when he in his homily, he mentioned— And this is Pope Francis. Pope Francis mentioned. He said the um, that it's very important not to get, you know, to have kind of a worldly— he said, don't look at God's grace. If we don't look at God's grace as the driving force in our life, we, we can look—we could get off track and have a worldly view of our, of our lives. And we can look for— if we look for substitutes that really don't satisfy us. So it was very, I think it was very real in the sense that, you know, we kind of remembering who we are and uh, in the middle of of everything. And so um, I think um, each year what we've tried to do since 1997, we've been privileged to have the support of our local archbishop uh, to come together and different forms of consecrated life, in, the, in Chicago, it's a majority of, re, of men and women religious of different ages and different charisms to, around a theme, around an important issue in the, in the church and in the world to reflect on and then to begin to, um, to reflect together. Now, there's such diversity here and the archdiocese is so big that most of us don't know each other. 
we don't have a chance to come together. This is an opportunity to come together and kind of be re-energized. You know, right. I'm off, at the end of the day, you know, I often uh, think about it at the end of the afternoon. It's, um, it's uh, people seem to go home happy. You know, it's something that it's uplifting. And it's a chance to celebrate Eucharist, you know, with, with the Archbishop, and we will do it with Cardinal Supich this Saturday, and uh, together. And in that, that we will renew our public, uh, publicly, we renew our vows and uh, our public commitment to the Church. Um, I think that that's um, it's really uh, important. This year's theme, I think, is very important, very timely. The mission of reconciliation in the church and in, in the and society and in the church, in our ministry and in our missions. So that is um, that's also a, that's a timely theme for this week, th- this year, and we hope that it would be um, will help us to become more of a force for unity in in church and society, wherever we are, whatever we do. Right. And also one other thing that I do love is the fact that we host or have hosted at a parish. And yes. when we are at a parish and we have the parish mass, we are also witnessing to the parishioners as well as, uh, especially for this year, uh, I just thought it the perfect place for our our Lady Mother of the Church, they have Mm -hmm. a huge narthex. So I just thought this would be perfect for, well, normally Mm -hmm. Kava um, that I coordinate, which is the Chicago Archdiocesan Vocation Association, Mm -hmm. we would Mm -hmm. ask parishes to host us for a vocation fair. Well, this time we're hosting a charism fair, which uh, we're aiming to be there, be a presence, and be able to encounter the parishioners so that at the end of mass we don't just go home and uh, celebrate a bit and then forget about it what it is is we're making connections at the same time it's a good witness for people to see that we even though our numbers may be declining in terms of um, return really i should say not declining i would say it's really returning to what is originally uh, the percentage of those who are responding to the call because of the changes in times. It was really more an, um, um, a, a, an aberration, but it, mm-hmm. it's a word meaning um, during the 1950s, 1960s, when the number of religious or consecrated men and women um, rose to its peak and now it's it's really returning more to what it has been, more, I would say, a prophetic number in which people who really do respond to this life, which is not for everyone. It's a very challenging life. It's a witness to community life, which is really the perfection and ideal is the Holy Trinity and, and the model of that. Just to have that um, opportunity, I think it's so exciting. Thanks to Sisters Lavina and Joan. Next up, we heard from Deacons Richard Hudzik and Dave Brensick. They talked with Deacon Bob Puhala, the Director of the Institute for Diaconal Studies at St. Mary of the Lake, Mundelein Seminary. So we're going to talk today about the formation of deacons and uh, you know the old uh, final exam question that maybe you saw in high school or college to compare and contrast so 
we want to compare and contrast the, the formation of deacons and have that serve as a suggestion for how all of us might continue our, our journey with, with the Lord. And so um, I guess let's begin at the beginning. Bob, you're with, as I say, the Institute for Diaconal Studies. You're the director of that. What do they do? And tell us something about that, that institute. Sure. Well, uh, as part of the University of St. Mary of the Lake Mundelein Seminary, uh, our team is in charge of, if you want to put it that way, of uh, helping people discern whether or not God is calling them to look into the diaconate as a way of serving God and his church. Um, We not only help men that are considering and discerning the possibility, but we help their wives, if they're married as well, uh, to discern whether they can support their husbands, both in formation uh, and uh, should he receive the gift of ordination, uh, post-ordination as well. So uh, we have a four-year program that's a comprehensive, intensive program uh, that would lead to the possibility of holy uh, ordination to the deacon and holy orders um, upon successful discernment. Um, it is a, it is a, a incredible commitment and sacrifice for uh, both the candidates and their wives, if they're married, uh, to uh, undertake that uh, discernment for the uh, diaconate. Uh, there, it, the the program uh, keeps people very, very busy. As I said, it's a comprehensive program, and it includes four different dimensions of formation, which everyone is uh, familiar with, I suppose. That's a human forma- uh, human dimension, and that's when we look at the gifts and talents of, of uh, the people, the men and the women that come to our program that God's already gifted them, and then we try and help them even enhance those gifts further for the benefit of God's people in the church. We also look to the intellectual dimension, so we get people that have all kinds of uh, academic backgrounds in terms of theology and understanding of theology, anywhere from uh, uh, some candidates who have GEDs to others that have post-professional degrees. And we try and help them learn more about the church so that they can articulate the authentic church teaching of the people that they serve. Uh, we also have the pastoral dimension, and that's when we try and uh, help people understand and develop pastoral skills for sacramental work, liturgies, and other kinds of ministries uh, that would need a pastoral touch, which also includes, of course, communication as well, uh, because if, if nothing else, uh, the diaconate and all ministry is about relationship. And finally, we have the spiritual dimension, and even though it's mentioned last, perhaps it's the most important. Uh, because a man looking into the possibility of diaconate, his wife accompanying him, and indeed all deacons and their wives, have to have a rich and full spiritual life, a good prayer life. They have to be centered in God, with God as as the, the object of their lives, in order to be able to um, have the kind of spirit to move forward and help others not only discern possibility of diaconate, but to live out their own particular call, whether it's diaconate or whether it's lay ministry. So um, in one sense for us at uh, Institute for Diaconal Studies, makes no difference whether a man is called to uh, ultimately the diaconate or a different kind of ministry like lay ministry. What we, what we hope and what we pray and what we help people do is discern where God is asking them to serve and how God is asking them to serve. And whatever they choose is truly a blessing and a gift. And no, go ahead. Uh, I just want to—I don't want to cut you off. Are you— are you finished? <laughs> He's on a roll. <laughs> I was on a roll. No. But the, the, the only thing I was going to mention is, is that uh, it doesn't matter how you serve. 
everybody that serves the church in whatever kind of capacity is invaluable to the body of the church. And so the diaconate, though um, uh, certainly a worthy uh, uh, object of discernment, is yet another way. No more important. You're not going to be holier. You're not going to be more special. You're not going to be higher. It's not a better way to serve. It's simply the way that God is calling you as an individual to serve his church. And so um, I, I guess I'm off my roll okay. now. <laughs> no, that's good. No, I didn't want to interrupt, um, but I, w- I was clearing my throat and that, that maybe gave you a, a, false, uh, a false alert. Uh, now you're doing this uh, in the English uh, in the English program, uh, and then Nelly, uh, who who could not be with us, uh, she's doing this uh, a similar program in uh, lay, lay ministry as well as uh, diaconate uh, formation, and, and that is the Spanish language. Both uh, also up at Mundelein, a, another one of the what there's four institutes at Mundelein right. Seminary. So we won't talk about those other. It's already complicated <laughs> enough. I wanted to come back to you. Um, you use the word discern a number of times, and here's a, a, a softball question, I guess, but discern, you're talking about four years? I mean, what takes so long, man? <laughs> I mean, isn't this a, a, a yes or no, a, a, a plus or minus kind of decision? It may be a yes. It may be, yes, I'm called to something else. Uh, but it takes time to figure out what exactly God is asking you to do. You know, you might feel that judge of the whole, uh, nudge of the Holy Spirit. You might feel uh, hear the whisper in your ear. But uh, when you come to us, even for the application process, and there's an extensive application process for the deconformation program for the Archdiocese, uh, what we always tell everybody is that we try and take every day at a time. We preach a kind of gradualism. So we certainly don't expect anyone upon application to say, God spoke to me last night, and he told me I'm supposed to be a deacon. Because if we hear that, then we need a lot more conversation before Mm -hmm. we move forward. Mm -hmm. What we do hope we hear is that, you know, I feel this call. I feel this pull. It's something that I can't stop, that I I can't not listen to. I have to move forward to see what God is asking me. And so that we journey with the men and their wives. Uh, Most of them are married, so the men and their wives. Um, And we'll journey with them to help them figure out just exactly what God is calling them to do. Uh, all We have a four-year program. That first year is primarily prayer and discernment. That's trying to figure out what God is, is calling you to. And all we hope that happens at the end of that first year is that a man may recognize whether or not God is calling him not to be a deacon, but simply to take the next step in discernment. You know, I know it just it strikes me is that rubs against the the modern grain of give me an answer man I, I want to know now this patience unfolding of examining your life is that is that a stretch uh, for for me and for for others or well aren't you, what, aren't you at different phases in your life you know through this whole process you're changing I think that's huge the men will change, would you say, Bob? Oh, absolutely. Well, first to to answer Dick's question, we do get guys that come to the program, and what they would like to do in the application interview is to let us know exactly every single thing they'll need to to have done in in four years in order so they could move along the process. Uh, That's not what we're about. And like you said, Dave, exactly. People are in all different stages of 
of uh, praying through this possibility. And some may have been thinking about it before they were married to their wives uh, and sh- or shortly after they were married. Uh, uh, others, it may have just come to them. Uh, uh, you know, usually it's, it's a process, but sometimes it's, it's, not, it, it's not much worse than falling off a horse and suddenly there you go. Check out that entire program by going to radiotv.archchicago.org. That's where you can hear all our local Catholic radio programs live or at your convenience. And our Catholic Chicago Week in Review program, the program that you're listening to right now, is available on your favorite mobile audio streaming apps, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Anchor. So subscribe today. Thanks for listening to us every Saturday morning here on Relevant Radio 950 and 930 a.m. I'm Jim Dish for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Have a great weekend, everyone. Join us every Saturday morning for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. You can stream our programs live or listen to past programs by visiting our website, archchicago.org, and clicking on Radio TV. And please connect with Catholic Chicago on social media.